Welcome to the Color Auntie Podcast. My name is Grace, joined by my co-host, Kozan. And we are so glad that you're here with us. We're just your northern girls trying to live our best life. We're here to help you through those dreadful morning commutes, or if you're just wanting to hear Quay out of things you may be experiencing, because both Quay and I have been there. We don't really know what we're doing in life, but we're hoping to figure it out with you along the way. <laughs> yeah. So listen, your podcast aunties love ya. Welcome back to the Call Her Andy podcast. And this month, as you know, we're celebrate, celebrating Black History Month with our relatives. So today we have on the podcast a special guest who is an author, educator, mother, and soon-to-be doctor. Some of you may know her from her young adult graphic novel series, Surviving the City, which had won the best work in an alternative format at the 2019 Indigenous Voices Awards. She is a feminist who holds a master's degree in land-based Indigenous education from the University of Saskatchewan, where she is also completing her PhD. Please welcome our Cree and Trinidadian relative, Tasha Spillett. Welcome. Thank you. you. I also just need to say that I loved how you said, and doctor, question mark, because every day when I like get in my little like 25 minutes of work that I can, I'm always like, oh my gosh, is this PhD going to happen? Like question mark, question mark. (laughs) Very appropriate. Oh, when are you expected to be done your, your PhD? Uh, So yeah, I don't know. I think that that's a, that's a, that's a question that all doctoral students are kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, it happens when it happens. I mm-hmm. would, my goal for myself is to complete um, in this calendar year or early next calendar year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be, that's just based on what's left of my, with my funding and, you know, really wanting to I move on from this season in my life into something mm-hmm. else, which is yet to be determined, but to something else, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's definitely inspiring to mm-hmm. um, read about all that you've done and you're uh, a fairly recently new mother. Your daughter, you said is 10 months old. So it's an, super awesome that you're, you know, juggling the both you know, education and um, motherhood, because I'm currently doing the same thing as well. And um, it's, you know, there's tough times, but then I, you know, I see um, other people that do it and I'm like, hey, you know what, if they can do it, I can do it. So thank you for almost paving a way for other generations to think that as well. Oh, and it's definitely like, I only think or believe that I can do it because I have several other women in my in my little community who have also done it. So, for example, like I just sent out like a, a little SOS text to uh, Dr. Tasha Hubbard, who is a, of course, a Cree filmmaker and an academic, and she had her son Q at the same time. Like she began her PhD when he was a small child, and so her PhD like took the same length of. At, at that point, like when she graduated, he, her PhD was as old as her son. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, there's incredible women who, you know, who do motherhood and manage to do amazing, incredible other things. And it's because they have that I believe that I can as well. Yeah, right. for, sure. for sure. I agree with that. Um, my mom was a professor for Algoma University. And so seeing her in that, like, institution I knew in my head growing up oh yeah university I can do this 
or like that's where I'm going to go because I got to see her in that setting all the time. And I think that for both your children, they'll see that and they'll think the same thing that like, oh, becoming a doctor. Yeah, I'll do that. Definitely. And I think that that's like part of the work, like incredible work that we do is we all follow our independent, like our, you know, our our unique and independent past, like whatever vision creator has given us each for our own lives as we like go towards those things or pursue those things it makes it real and tangible for other people who have also been given similar visions for their own lives like to normalize seeing black and brown people in every aspect of our society is like hugely important especially um, in the places where we haven't had access to go in previous Mm -hmm. generations Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just thinking like we had Christmas dinner with, um, of course not this year, <laughs> but we had it when we were able to not this year, but the last year with a group of friends and all of our, of all of our children, we didn't have our child yet, but we were thinking, you know, like around that table was like indigenous, um, politicians, doctors, lawyers. Uh, and I was just like watching all the kids, like run around and thinking you know they just think it's totally normal to have like auntie and uncle who's like you know doing all these crazy and amazing things in our community and uh and that's that's pretty amazing uh mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing that we've done you know in very and basically one short generation outside of like residential schools we've done such tremendous and transformative work for our communities and our children get to, you know, in like grow in that abundance. And I think that that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I like just got kind of blown away too. And I'm like, oh my God, it has only been like one generation and we've already flipped it so hard. Right. That's, that's so like amazing to think of. Yeah. And that speaks towards like, you know, that, that just really deeply embedded, um, ability to like thrive and survive and be resilient and be you know and be just incredible beings that that we are that we mm-hmm. you know also we're working through like several generations of trauma and then as well as propel ourselves so so far away from that trauma is just like you know pretty incredible yeah for sure um so I want to try to, I think me and Koi totally want to get to know you more. So um, I guess our first question is, where did you grow up and where do you live now? Okay, so I I grew up here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory. Uh, and, you know, born and raised, like, I always, I kind of like identify a lot with the quote, to bloom where you're planted, or to bloom where you're rooted or bloom where you've been planted. Um, and so I, maybe that's a part of me also just like cozying deeper into me being such a homebody, but I, I love my, for better or worse, I love my hometown. I love the community that I'm, I was born into and the community that I was raised in. And now I raise my daughter in, uh, and it's really, you know, um, Winnipeg I know has like on the national plot, like the national, um, nationally has like a little bit of a tumultuous reputation as being you know like we I think we've taken murder capital of Canada far too many times and you know there's a lot of adversity associated with the with with Winnipeg and Manitoba but you know I do love I I love 
um, my home. And I think like we're a little bit like a dysfunctional family here. Like we might fight hard, but we love equally as hard. And if you come for us, like we might fight amongst each other, but if you come for one of us, we're all coming for you kind of thing. So I do, I do love this city. I love, I love the urban indigenous community here. And I just think like, you know, um, politically, socially, and culturally, we're, you know, there's several families here that have worked like so hard with each other to, to make space for our, you know, for our own wellness here in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. I'm quite familiar with Winnipeg because I grew up in Thunder Bay. So the Winnipeg was kind of the next closest big city and we would go there and I got some family there as well. So um, yeah, I grew up going to Winnipeg quite a bit. So I totally understand about Thunder Bay as well. You know, it's got his, its reputation as well. But when you have your roots there and your family and your community, like you said, it's it it's home for, for me there. So I totally understand. And that's, so you went um, during this time, you went to Saskatchewan as well for school. Did you, was that online or were you traveling or did you live there? What did you do your undergrad in and where? Okay, so my undergrad, I have an undergrad, I have a B.Ed. and a B.A. in, um, well, in education, and then, um, and I did that at the University of Winnipeg here, and, and then I went ahead, so I graduated, uh, and then I went into teaching, so I'm like, you know, I have an education background, and I taught in the, uh, in the Winnipeg public school system for a couple years, and at the same time, I was doing my master's degree. So I was teaching full-time and doing my master's degree as well. And the master's degree um, I took through the University of Saskatchewan. It's in Indigenous land-based education. And that program is pretty unique in that it supports teachers specifically to work online um, from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And then we met um, on different land bases um, in the summer months when we were off off of the school year to do other like course-based stuff course-based learning on the land and and then I graduated from that and then I don't know I just like I'm a Capricorn so it's like I like push ahead like I am climbing that mountain (laughs) and I think that's just about like my nature because right after my master's degree I went into my PhD uh, which is um, also you know I did courses on the land and then online all from all from Winnipeg and so although my degree is through the University of Saskatchewan I like I haven't lived in Saskatchewan I stayed I stayed here to do it okay nice I wanted to like keep talking about your master's though because I I'm gonna do my master's eventually but the hardest thing for me is like choosing a program so right now I'm thinking of like oh I want to do a master's in communication but I'm like oh should I do a master's in like leadership or business? Cause my undergrad is in business. Um, but how did you, cause the, the land-based program for your master sounds really brilliant. How was that a natural choice for you or did you have a hard time choosing as well? No, it was a very natural uh, choice because the person who leads that program, Dr. Alex Wilson, who's also now my PhD supervisor is from my home territory in Northern Manitoba. And so I knew that I wanted to work with her And I knew that in academia, I wanted to work where it was safe to work. And to do that, I needed to know that I was going to be 
led and um, protected by indigenous women academics and indigenous two-spirit academics. And so that was in choosing the master's degree program, I, I followed where I had a relationship. And so I think that that's really important for young indigenous um, emerging academics is go to war, go to where you know your people are and you will be supported because academia is not a friendly place for black and brown students. Um, and black and brown uh, professors and academics work so hard to try to provide safeguards for um, students like us. And mm -hmm. so I really think that it's important to, yes, choose your program of interest, but look who is there, who can be your mentor, who can be your um, safe place to land when shit hits the fan. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the ivory tower is a violent place for many, many indigenous students and academics alike. And so it's really important. That's what I went there. I went, I chose the indigenous land-based education program because I knew that um, the path was that somebody went ahead on the path to make my walk a little bit easier. Um, and there would be you no know, um, less hurdles to, to climb, not to say that there haven't been because there definitely has. And then also because I wanted to connect more with my own identity um, and to be on the land, that was really important to me. This That particular program also had an international partnership. So I was able to go to Hawaii to study with um, Native oh. Hawaiian uh, people, communities, academics um, th on three, two or three occasions uh, throughout my master's degree and my PhD. So that was also incredible uh, and got me, you know, like, like I said, uh, I'm a homebody, but it got me out of my comfort zone and allowed me to grow as an individual person, mm -hmm. um, start having my own experiences outside of, um, you know, those family connections, those home root connections. Uh, yeah, so that's how I chose the program. And also, I think it was really important to me that the program was a cohort. So I went through with a group of other people who also were teachers and, you know, also had their own family connections. And so we were able to lean on each other, especially the other Indigenous women in the program. You know, we, we really, we still stay connected. We are family now after going through that process together. And so I, I am a huge like advocate for the cohort system because it allows, especially for master's degrees, it allows you to have people who are in the same experience as you. And, you know, um, when you're in a master's degree, when you're in a PhD program, your family is there to love you and to support you. And it's, you can't, but we can't really expect them to understand what it is we're going through. Um, because, you know, there's such specific things about academia that are outside of like, you know, what's even seen as normal for lots of our family and friends. And lots of, for in like, in all truth, lots of it isn't normal uh, with the rig how rigorous the programs are. And so um, it's good to have people who, who know because they're also experiencing the same thing to have those conversations that have a common language that have common experience bases. So yeah, cohorts are, I think are really, really awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, relationships. I'm yeah, now I know as you've given me a little more light at what the next step of education is gonna be and how to like build supports for myself for success. So 
thank you so much for sharing that info. Mm-hmm. And Question. I like love how you also mentioned part of your program was like traveling because that's a big thing for me. So I think that maybe when I do look at programs, I'm going to look at like how I could go to Hawaii or New Zealand or like South America. <laughs> Please do. Like I have a, a very good friend of mine. Her name was Dorita Gray Eyes. She's studying at Stanford right now. Um, and I am tell it's so strange because until she went to Stanford, I didn't even realize that I could apply elsewhere, you know, and it's so strange that like, you know, I have a pretty big world, but I just never thought that that was a possibility. And so now I'm always encouraging people like see far beyond where you are, like, please go study in Hawaii, please go study in Australia. It's like this and in you know, in relation to our lives, it's this relatively small period of time, those two or three years for a master's degree, or even shorter some programs. So like take the leap um, and go have an experience because I think that's just like so valuable to your personal growth. Totally. That's something I'm going to note too when I get to my master's. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going to get there, Grace. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, So my next question is, so me and Quay are two Ojibwe women interested in cultural exchanges. What is your favorite thing about your Cree heritage? And what is your favorite thing about your Trinidadian heritage? Mm -hmm. So I guess I have to kind of contextualize this because, so I'm an Afro-Indigenous person. I have both Cree lineage and Trinidadian lineage, like by way of West Africa through the slave trade. So but I don't have a strong connection um, with my Trinidad, Trinidadian or Black community because I wasn't raised within it. And, I'll, and, I, and there, that's a reality of my mom being a single mom. So I was raised by a Korean woman. Um, my dad didn't have like a large involvement in mine and my sister's life. And so she raised us within her own community. Uh, and, and so my favorite thing about, you know, Cree community is for sure humor. And I like, I just like find like our humor to be so such a, um, an integral part of both our ability to survive, but also like our ability, our ability just to like find joy and release and healing. And I like, I'm always just like so amazed by the bounds of indigenous humor. And I think we see it every day online. Like for sure, it's like people like, <laughs> like indigenous people do the most when it comes to finding ways to make light of situations and to mm-hmm. like have space for humor. And I think like the latest example of this, which will like kind of timestamp the recording date of this podcast, but like the uh, white nationalist riots in the states that we saw around Trump mm-hmm. and um, the inauguration of Biden. Uh, and so like, you know, like that the person in the helmet with the horns, like he became like an indigenous meme icon because there is so there is just so many funny things to be said about that image. And just, yeah. Like, how ridiculous, ridiculous it was. And I love like, you know, I love irreverent humor. And I think that that's like such a beautiful part of being an indigenous person and Cree people, like maybe I'm Cree centric, but I feel like Cree people have like an extra, like almost like edgy, funny, um, outside of our community, maybe even like people might see it as a little bit like 
mean, but it's, it's not mean spirited, but it can be like, it can, it definitely comes with a bite sometimes. And so I think that that's like my favorite part of my Cree culture. And when I, when I think of my indigenous or my black, my black um, culture and community, the thing that I identify mo most is the pursuit of liberation. And so one thing that my mom was really, really strong about was connecting us, my, my sister and myself through understandings of uh, black liberation movements. And so um, she did her best to like always make sure that we had access to understandings of like the black um, Black Panther movement. And, you know, now we see like current day articulations of that same liberation, pursuit for liberation in the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And so I think that that continuous pursuit of liberation is what I'm most enamored by for my Black um, community, my Black uh, ancestry. And that's now as an adult, like even though I wasn't raised within the community, I find space within a community as an adult by participating and engaging and contributing to those, um, to those movements of liberation. And so, um, and I think those two things go hand in hand. And like, sometimes when I'm having like a tough day, um, I think about like the two bloodlines that I ascend from. And I think like, holy smokes, like I survive, like I descend from people who both, um, you know, who both survived like colonialism and like the theft of land from people, but also of people from land through like the transatlantic slave, the slave um, system. And so I, you know, I draw huge like love and strength from both of those bloodlines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely so powerful. Um, I loved how you touched on the humor part of our Indigenous people mm -hmm. and for you, especially the Crees. Um, and then I just totally thought of my my granny on something she says. I'm like, holy, that's so mean. <laughs> and she's whispering it under her like breath. And I'm like, holy, like good thing I'm the only one that heard that. <laughs> You know what I thought this year too, like where I'm like, oh my god, we do find humor anywhere, is when that like the they were doing the votes and it was like a certain percentage something else, and then oh, yeah. all of a sudden, like native Facebook and all native memes just started popping up, and I'm like, here we go, you can't keep us down for long. Yeah, no, and I think that that's like I I don't know, I love it. I love like we are such creative people, and I think that it's like our creativity knows no bounds. And I think that that's like, you know, I think that that's testament to like, there's been such severe and violent ways to suppress our bodies and our, you know, our minds and our spirits, but we just have shown that there's no really like holding us in confines. And so I think that that's really incredible. Okay, I have the next question. Um, it's kind of, okay, so I'm, I can think kind of, yeah, but then I want to ask you for sure. So your latest, your latest book, I sang you down from the stars. Did you, did you write that while you were pregnant? Uh, yes, I did. For the most part, I wrote it when I was pregnant, but it really comes from, um, 
it comes from a long time because I wanted my baby long, long before I was became pregnant with her. I actually want long, wanted her long before I was even in a partnership with my husband. Like I've always wanted my girl, you know, like for a long time. And so I feel like, um, like she chose the right time to come into my life. She chose the right, like who, like when I eventually figured all my stuff out and ended up with like a healthy partner she was like okay let's do this and then she chose like to come forward at that time but I've all like you know it had been a long time of me wanting to be a mother before I actually became a mother and so I'm really that story kind of like reflects like the time that I was in yes when I was pregnant but also extends further back to when I was, you know, I, you know, in my twenties and, you know, wanting to be pregnant. Um, and then it just not being the right time for, for various reasons. And then, you know, and then we became pregnant with, um, our, our daughter, Isabella Gijigaliamic Onyx Sumner, and she's like the best, like she is, I just like I am her hugest fan like she is just like to me that she is like the queen of my world and I just love her so so much and you know becoming a mother has been so transformative for me and of course like yes my daughter is 10 months old which means that she was born um, at the beginning of the pandemic here when it arrived here in Canada. So I gave birth to my daughter March 3rd. Um, we came with her home with her March 4th and by March 9th, our city was on lockdown. And so that, mean, that means that I had only a handful of days where she could meet um, her family and I could have the support, outside support of family. Mm -hmm. And then after those handful of days, my husband and I have been in our house on our own, um, figuring out parenthood, um, figuring out, you know, how to support one another, figuring out how to, you know, be parents and, you know, raise our daughter. Uh, and, it, and it has been tough, let me tell you, like, um, when you, especially, I think, especially as Indigenous people, like we exist in very intricate kinship systems, which are activated in times of need, like when somebody first becomes a parent, because you need support, you need community. But there was nothing for us when we came home with our daughter. Those, you know, those family and extended family supports that we believed would be there when we first got pregnant couldn't be, um, not because they were choosing not to be, but because of the health restrictions, uh, mm. wasn't a possibility. And so we, I believe that we have a really unique experience in our entrance into parenthood. And so, um, I've, I've been trying to, um, capture that in my writing, um, because, you know, there'll be a whole, you know, there'll be a whole couple years of parents and children who will share this very unique experience. Um, you know, children who haven't been held by their grandparents or, you know, who, you know, parents who like, like us who were pretty much on our own to, on our own to figure it out. Uh, and so I sing you down from the stars is about like that when I was pregnant with her and we were like, quote unquote, in our normal, like, our normal life and people could still hug and visit and gather um 
and how I envisioned it would be like there's a line in the book something like um family gathered from far and wide and like that was like the hopefulness when I was pregnant and then that hasn't been a like we haven't been able to do that like my daughter still has blood and relatives like you know aunts and cousins who she has never met yet in her 10 months of life and so we're hoping and hopeful that this summer you know we can gather in safe ways again Mm -hmm. so we should they can all meet this beautiful baby that's just like waiting to meet everyone (laughs) yeah well we want to meet her (laughs) (laughs) i I have one more question though yeah Um, and i was talking to grace about this before the podcast because when i started to like think about the questions we were going to ask you i was like oh i want to ask her because i've been thinking about this more lately did being pregnant scare you um well okay so when I think when I became pregnant I became like instantly very this is so strange but instantly hyper aware of my own um mortality and I think like carrying life like you know everything you know there's we exist in many dualities and like life and death are both very sacred and important ceremonies like birth and death And I think when you're carrying life, something about that is like, I don't know, I just thought a lot about my own death. And um, I had to really come to peace with that. Otherwise, it was going to really trigger my anxiety. I didn't fear pregnancy. I just, you know, especially those first three months, though, I was like, you know, really tried to focus on being thankful for her life, the life that I was carrying and just focus on, you know, my thoughts on, I'm so thankful. Like I always were to repeat to myself, I'm so thankful I have, I'm carrying a healthy baby and I'm having a healthy pregnancy to just like try to um, turn my thoughts onto affirming what I wanted, which I think is really important because we have to be really careful what we do with our energy. And Mm -hmm. if we are constantly like, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. We're really letting our energy go towards, you know, that fear-based thing, moving that fear-based thing forward. Mm -hmm. But we can use our energy to affirm the things that we do want, that we do want. I am pregnant with a healthy and happy child. I will have a healthy and happy pregnancy. I will have a positive birth, you know? And that's what I tried to do throughout my pregnancy. And, um, I had a heart <laughs> and I like pregnancy and birth is not easy, but it it's beautiful. And it's, um, it's definitely something that like, you know, will like alter who you are as a person. And I like, I'm such an advocate of not scaring birthing people because I think that there's like so much in the world, like people like are the burdens of our, if we unfortunately, you know, I know people unfortunately do have really traumatic birth experiences, but it's so important not to make that experience the like benchmark for people who are going to be birthing. So it can leave space for their positive experience. So actually like early on in our pregnancy, my husband and I had to like publicly state like, please do not tell us any of your horror stories. Like this is not the time. Like we just really created space and kept space for ourselves and our child that we were, you know, we were open to positive and beautiful things. And Mm -hmm. uh, I actually think I remember that. 
Yeah. So like, pre- like pregnancy, I had a great pregnancy. I loved being pregnant and I had a really good birth. It was tough though. Like thirties, I had to be um, induced, which is like a really, really tough thing on the body for me. It was. And then I had 36 hours of labor, um, you know, a couple hours of pushing, but like, I look at it now and I'm like, feel like a super being because it's like, I did that. Like I literally like birthed this person. I made this whole person. I pushed her through my body. Like that, it just makes me feel like such a badass, like the deadliest of deadly. (laughs) And so I'm so glad I have that experience, even though it was tough because, you know, um, I just think it was like one of my, it was like, that is like the ultimate thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm so grateful that I, my body could do it. Yeah. I remember, um, my mother-in-law telling me, cause, um, when I was getting close to having my son, I was like, Oh, I'm so nervous. Like, I don't really have a plan. And she's like, she, she told me, she's like, just remember that your body is is meant to do this like it's you can do it natural you can do you can do an epidural and same with me I had to be induced as well because I had gestational diabetes so I had to deliver a bit early and your body like at that time of being induced is not ready to deliver but it you're they're wanting you to and tricking your body into thinking it is ready so that was like really hard for me but I because I was fairly young when I had had my son that I think I didn't really know what to expect. So I had no expectations going into pregnancy and like the whole labor. So I didn't, I was like, oh, I don't know, like my birth plan. I don't know this. And I think it benefited me because it was a little bit traumatic for me with gestational diabetes and the being induced and all that, that if they told me that at the beginning, that that was a possibility for me, I would have just been spiraling probably my whole pregnancy. But I think that was really smart for you guys to make that statement. Because I think people in, in these instances like to share their stories, and maybe it isn't the most positive thing to hear, especially for new parents, when you're trying to create that safe learning experience for, for, um, for your first pregnancy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that was Um, I have a question, um, since we're talking about this, what have you learned about yourself after having your baby? Uh, so I learned, I learned that I have like a fierceness in me that I didn't really realize I had before. And I think there's something about being a mother that like brings out like this ability just to be like, um like like they don't say mama bear for no reason like there is something like when you feel like your child needs you or you're like you are required to like rise to a certain occasion on behalf of the safety of your child that there is something like that just like comes from the pit of your stomach up and as it's like boom it's there and like people better watch out and I didn't like I think I'm a fairly even tempered person but um, definitely after having my daughter, like my tolerance for like bullshit is so low. Like I am like, I will, I don't tolerate, um, you know, much in the way of like disrespect or, um, or just like foolishness around me. Like I was like, 
yesterday or the other day I was in a Tim Hortons lineup and there was this um like settler these two settler males who were having like they were raging on each other and the Tim Hortons um like line the drive-through and they had their windows down and they were swearing and I didn't have my daughter with me but the car in front of me was a woman and her two kids and I just like felt this like rage in my stomach like bubble up like I rolled down the window and I was like, Hey, there's children up here. I was like, you guys need to get help. And like, I would have never, like, I would have like previously would have just been like, mind your business. It's not your issue. But like, just knowing like, Hey, like we have to make safe space for the, for children. Like, this is not the time and the place. Like you guys take your rage to therapy where it belongs because like, you know, it can't be spilling over into the environment where there's children. And then also like, um, becoming a mother has, you know, I want to be the woman that my, like, I want to role model for my daughter, what is acceptable, what she deserves in life. And so also like being very decisive, um, you know, like I'm much more, I'm much more like, um, like I, I have certain expectations on how people should be treated. Um, and I'm less, uh, I guess I have less tolerance for when people are not being loved and respected and treated in the way that they should. And I think that's really reflected in my second graphic novel from the roots up that talks about um, how we need to make space um, for, you know, trans and two spirit people. Like I come from a really strong, strong cultural family in the way like we have sudden, we have sentences in my family and sweat lodges and like, that's very much like actively participating in ceremony is a very much a part of my family's background and you know unsettling the way that homophobia and transphobia have been um have found their way into our cultural practices has been really important to me um when I was a teacher because I knew that a lot of my students were you know um were you know were feeling excluded from ceremony based on whoever based on their identities and I thought you know like we are pushing our own our own relatives further away from our networks of care mm -hmm. we are pushing our relatives further away from everything that we know keeps us safe from the forces that you know harm us and so like we need to stop that we need to like on every front we need to be very decisive and very um unwavering in all that um all that serves to keep our own relatives away from what we know provides us safety and belonging and security and love uh, and bring when we do that we bring our own family home we call in our own relatives we bring us ourselves back into our circle um, and so having a daughter like I want my daughter my daughter is an Anishinaabe she's Cree she's Trinidadian I want her to know that all like she has a right to be in all of on her own land in her own body in the way that creator has designed her to be and feel safe and protected and loved all the time. And it's my job as her mother to do what I have to do, to say the uncomfortable things, to you know take the position, take the strong positions so that it's safe, safe for her. And I think that it's all of our responsibilities as 
moms and dads and aunties and uncles and and relatives um, to do to do that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And to think of the time, you know, that you're creating that safe space for her and our our younger ones, it's a relatively small time we're gonna be having them at home, and then they're gonna go off into the world and what example have they learned from? And, you know, we just hope that we create that safe space for them and that they can do it on their own when, when they're off getting their PhDs. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all that. Yeah, you're welcome. As we come to the end of the episode, I wanted to ask you one last thing, and then you can let us know about any projects and where we can find you online. So my, our last question is, if you can give your younger self advice, what would that be? Uh, my younger self, I could give my younger self advice. It would just be to find some time to put yourself first, to love yourself, to do good things for yourself, have great experiences and call back those memories when you're in a time in your life when you're no longer able to put yourself first every day. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you so much. And um, if anyone wants to buy your books, they can go to portageandmainpress.com. Correct? Yeah, they can go to portageandmainpress.com to buy right from the publishing house. They can also go to McNally Robinson, which is um, based in Winnipeg. Um, and they ship everywhere. I always tell people to support indie bookstores over Amazon. But last resort, you can find me on Amazon as well. If our listeners want to connect with you and like follow you anywhere online, where can they do that? I'm Tasha, T-A-S-H-A dot spill it, S-P-I-L-L-E-T-T on everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Facebook has my married name as well, but you can find me Tasha Spill It on all platforms. So miigwech, thank you for joining us. And that wraps up our episode for today. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So your podcast, Andy's know that life can be tough. And we want to end our episode with promoting the Hope for Wellness talk line. The Hope for Wellness um, helpline offers immediate help to all Indigenous people across Canada. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer counseling and crisis intervention. Life can be tough and we've all been there. So call the toll-free helpline at 1-855-242-3310 or connect online to their chat at hopeforwellness.ca. And remember that your podcast entities love you.